0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Can, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 112, *Davos Seaworth in A Storm of Swords, chapter 5. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I
1: am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Happy New Year, everyone.
0: Happy, happy New Year, everyone, Eliana. Eliana especially, hello. I just feel like I haven't seen you since last year. That's, that's true. Not true. We were on Monero mm. TV stream on January 1st together, and I gazed upon your lovely that's face true. there. It was on YouTube. It was a ginger ale talk. It was highly inappropriate. I know a handful of you may have caught it if you follow our social medias. Uh, you may have seen it and jumped on there and seen some highly inappropriate talk that may or may not have had to deal with a red, bursting, veiny dragon dildo and a sword
1: and a sword and and the night the night kink is what they called it dildo it was lusty it was a lusty stream you know monero
0: doesn't leave them up for public consumption because sometimes if you visit monero geek tv's youtube you can find streams where people are saying inappropriate things that they may not want on the internet after they say it and i appreciate her for that she's a saint she uh she takes care of us in our heart. <laughs> yes.
1: She does. And you know what? I mean I stand by anything that I said, but at the same time I I, <laughs> I do Don't. stand I stand by it, Chloe. <laughs> I, uh, but I'm glad she has taken them down as well. Uh so technically we didn't record <laughs> in a way. You know, technically way, we did not.
0: So this is it. This is it. This is our first real official on the record recording of twenty twenty one. We're feeling fine. We're with Davos in A Storm of Swords. Davos 5. He's not in cells for once. This is good. Mm. This is a good time for Davos. Maybe. Maybe. Ah.
1: It's a difficult time for Davos. Davos is having a hard time. Having a hard life. He does have a hard life. He's lost four sons. Whose fault was that? I mean... There's a lot of people involved, which the feudal system they live in,
0: Eliana. That is what I was looking <laughs> the green, for. You're the Jade fired. Demon
1: at the Blackwater. That was yeah. actually great imagery. Yeah.
0: You know, Nauticast is going through the Blackwater right now. They're about to get to Sansa and Tyrion. They just finished some Davos episodes. If you're listening, you may recant when we hit up Davos and the Blackwater. But they just got through it. They had some really great some great war analysis. If you're into the battle aspects, please go check out Nauticast's podcast in those episodes because as Eliana and I stake our claims, we are not war analysts, right? No. We're kind of a, kind of the opposite. We're hippies in a way, you know? We're We're the people, the war analysts are next to us, quite literally in my case, and I'm sitting here like, give peace a chance. Don't sell Dragonstone's oil or King's Landing's oil. So, I mean, go check them out if you want to hear about the oil sales, but
1: Chloe watching her cats and the quarrels. Give peace a chance! That's what happens (laughs) in
0: her home. I used to try the water bottle, but now they sneer at me. They straight up look at me and they just look at me like, how dare you? We're not doing anything wrong and they don't move, so. They're teenagers (laughs) now.
1: They're adolescents. They're teenagers. And we're going to see a couple of snarky teenagers in this episode. Well, preteens, which is also pre-teens. its own. Thing. Tweens? Tweens, yeah. Tweens? Depending on how you feel. Whichever terminology you prefer. Uh, before we get there, though, we did get an email of note. Actually, technically, two emails of note from our friend Daniel. Daniel sent us an email earlier on about Sansa and with a lot of great thoughts. And I, I really quite like them. But to quote George, I'm going to tell Daniel to keep reading, or if you will, keep listening, because I think you'll find that we're quite aligned. And uh, some of those ideas we do talk about in our Sansa Wins episode, the Elaine Wins episode. Yeah, I
0: especially love the
1: email Daniel sent
0: us uh, titled, Men's Lives Have Meanings, and Women, and Envy's Lives as well, obviously. Uh, and they said, In a recent episode, you talked about the quote about men's deaths having no meanings, but men's lives. You gave examples of how you feel the quote's wrong, at least sometimes, like in Donald Noy's case. I wanted to share my own perspective and how I've personally read that quote. In my reading, the quote is asserting, the death itself has no meaning. Dying is not meaningful by itself. The meaning comes from the life, who the person was, what they chose to do that led to their death, this meaning can come from the lives that were saved thanks to that sacrifice. The men in men's lives and the men in men's death are not necessarily the same men. So if we look at Donal Noy, his death was not what was meaningful necessarily. It was his life and how he chose to sacrifice it. It was the lives of his brothers and the people of the realm that he died protecting. A good contrast to that is Ned's initial choice to die and not lie about Joffrey. Only when Varys reminds him of Sansa, Ned realizes Sansa's life and safety is what's important. His death would have no meaning, but Sansa's life definitely does. Would love to hear your thoughts. Keep it up. Daniel.
1: Yeah, I thought this was a really insightful email and, you know, expands well on what we were discussing. Technically, it's not a recent episode if any of you are are here with us in Davos. This was probably recent. Uh, Daniel is starting from this beginning catching up to us here in 2021 so i don't actually know where we are it sounds like maybe we discussed this in one of the john episodes is my guess but i don't really know (laughs) and yeah i don't know i just thought this was really good and it's something that um i think is really interesting in the context of all of the characters right in terms of what they do that leads up to their death if if Any of them die, and it's just a good way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, interestingly enough, it has a lot
1: of resonance
0: Mm -hmm. for this Davos chapter that we're currently approaching with Stannis' decision around Edric Storm, right? And there were a couple ways we could have done this chapter. We could have joined it up with Davos 6 if we really wanted to get crazy, just because this chapter's a little brief, right? Uh, It's the before, the the calm, before. Next chapter is definitely the storm, the Edric Storm, so to speak. Wow! You can't fire me, you can only hire me, give me a raise, it's 2021, I'm swinging, coming and swinging, Eliana. Uh, But it is, it's the Edric Storm, and it's not important, Davos decides, by the end of this chapter, we don't necessarily get the resolution of his decision until Davos 6 in A Storm of Swords, but Davos decides that Edric's life has meaning, right? And he's willing to risk it all in 2021, or 299-300 AC, Uh, to get Edric to safety.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Edric Storm, it's it's really interesting because I think Edric Storm's fate is also talked about in this level kind of with Joffrey's, right? Daniel talks about Joffrey and the lies surrounding Joffrey as well, as a bastard, and you know, do we apply this saying, right, to Joffrey? For men's lives have meaning, right? Children's lives, whatever. And how that all goes. So, I, I just thought that it was, um, a great extrapolation.
0: Yeah, a really meaningful email. Thank you so much, Daniel, and we look forward to more of your thoughts as you finally get through the podcast. Yes. Glad to have you aboard.
1: Well, you know, before we talk about the storm, the Baratheon storm, <laughs> we got a lightning round ahead of us. Yes, and of course, this is
0: a specialized lightning round. I'm skipping a few things in between. We're going to skip around. We're going to cover Jamie, Tyrion, John, Danny, Catelyn. And, of course, return at the end of Tyrion. But first up, we have Jamie 5, where Jamie and Brienne bathe in his past before being brought to Roose Bolton.
1: Tyrion 5. Tyrion meets the Dornish faction in King's Landing.
0: Jon 5. Jon must turn his cloak on his brand new family.
1: Daenerys 4. The Stormcrows join Daenerys' cause, and they take Yunkai in the night. She is called Mother by the Freedmen. Jamie 6. Jamie forgets something at Harrenhal,
0: and he must return to protect it.
1: Catlin 5. Rob's crew makes its way through Old Stones to Hagsmire, and Rob reminds his mother that he is the king. John 6. John evacuates Molestown, reaching Castle Black. Catlin 6 and Catlin 7. We're really going to combine both of these in this lightning round. <laughs> we are. Greywind's howls foreshadow the long night to come. And Lord Bolton's entrance brings dark words from the north as well. But something is wrong at the wedding feast, and Catelyn recognizes it quickly. Jamie Lannister gives his regards. Um, I want
0: to denote that there was something I was going to make you perform, Eliana, but I saved you. At the last moment, and this was a rendition of Jamie Lannister gives his regards to Robway instead of Broadway. To Rob yep. Way, remember
1: him. Chloe has lyrics here. Do you want to perform yeah, it? or It's a
0: remember him to Torrent
1: Square. I didn't go farther than
0: that, but uh, that's why I decided you didn't need to perform it. So. It's got
1: potential. We'll think about Thanks. it for, for something else.
0: Girls Gone Canon, the musical episode. We kind of did that for his start materials, we I guess. We did, in a
1: way, yeah.
0: A swap is to come. A swap is to come. It is a
1: song <laughs> of ice and fire. Well, you already have your musical. You have your Westeros the Musical.
0: Well, maybe we'll put some more music in it. But for now, that leaves us with Tyrion 6 in our lightning round. Tyrion is upset he can't unload all of his hard work life on his unsuspecting child bride. His life gets instantly harder when he goes to a work meeting and learns that the same unsuspecting child bride's family just got murdered.
1: Again. Rough. Davos V. The king says he will not burn the child, but deep within the Onion Knight's heart, he doesn't know if he believes his grace. Davos learns significant knowledge in his lessons with Maester Pylos. Damn, you're out here like, we gotta respect
0: Maester Pylos. I didn't write Maester but Elian. like,
1: Maester Pylos. I'm a Maester, Maester Pylos I stand Maester after this Pylos. chapter. I was like, oh. who, who am I? Again, who am I? But Pylos is actually legitimately, I think, uncontroversial.
0: It's 2021.
1: New year, new year. Yeah, that's true. But is it? I mean, like last year or the year before, I was like, ill in pain, Stan. <laughs> Maybe hey, this, this is a step up. This is
0: not the last POV this year. so
1: That's true. Well, you know, as we enter Davos 5, I do want to say up top that people, including myself, have often discussed Stannis in the context of Shakespeare, but many people much more in-depth. I'm just like, Neh. throw away Reddit comment. Um, but also Stannis in the context of plays in general, right? And I think that this chapter, especially in the first half of the quick dialogue back and forth, really drives those scenes and drives um, the action there. It feels very much like something out of a play. And I think there's even like a comical sort of exaggerated nature to some of the characters' actions especially in Celise and Axel but just all around it the scene carries this really ominous vibe quite like many of the scenes in Macbeth which I say and it's a very interestingly <laughs> written and strong chapter.
0: You're going to say it. Oh, it hurt me. I it have hurt me, life.
1: Yeah, I'm not, you know, it's just like superstitions are for small men
0: and it's funny because I tower over you yeah you
1: are uh, real tall
0: <laughs> you know last episode when we had Quinn on for Davos 4 and a Storm of Swords Quinn from Quinn's Ideas that was at the last but Quinn read out the entire beautiful monologue where oh Melisandra does the leeches okay. with Stanny and Davos and I personally am used to my lovely co-host's amazing rendition of Melisandre I was very hungover at Ice and Fire Con in, I believe, 2019, and Eliana actually did a scene with a couple of our friends in the uh, the. It's like a little talent parade show thing. There's no, I don't know. It's what what, what we call it the costume contest parade. It's like thing? a variety show or
1: something. The variety show. I don't know. But it's Eliana like did a my... great
0: job. Eliana wore I didn't. this beautiful burgundy wig, and she was all like, "I'm Melisandre." Your grace, she was all like very—I don't know—very uh, bombshelly, and it was wonderful. But that's what I'm used to hearing in my head is oh, Ariana Melisandre. So hearing Quinn do the the leech scene was very fun. But I'm ready to have you do some strong Melisandre as we go through the rest of these chapters. I
1: don't know that I did like that great a job, but so we were joined uh, on the stage. I, I was joined by Scott, who I think had this idea maybe he's the one who put it together from Davos, Davos Fingers <laughs> and the, also Seth another one of our friends from the con who does a lot of theater both of them do a lot of acting in theater and they're interested in that I don't know what I was doing but I found out I look great in red hair that's the takeaway
0: <laughs> it was a nice cool burgundy but yes uh, something about these scenes have like this overacting right like it feels like a uh, a performance it does at- a Game of Thrones convention. I mean, it feels like a, a really overacted, like, on purpose, and I think Dragonstone in general is probably, especially in this chapter with the details we get, one of the most set-like pieces, mm. right?
1: Yeah. And even just the way that the scenes work, right, and how, how uh, it gets driven in the first part of this chapter. Yeah. Well, to set the stage...
0: Robb Stark died at his wedding. That is the first thing we opened the chapter with. That was the subject of the last chapter for Tyrion. And... Davos is like, wow, this is a curse. Excellent, and are on their knees. They're like singing their praises to the Lord. And Stannis is standing there and he says, oh, I have my doubts. This was Walder Frey's work, not R'Lor. And Selyse is crying out at her god's greatness, but Stannis finally hushes her. And he says, I plan to offer pardons to those who have bent the knee if they join me. They'll repent and see... Melisandre bursts this planning bubble. She says, More false kings will rise up to take their place soon. Stannis isn't happy to hear what she's been seeing in her flames.
1: Granted, I guess he thinks that Rob's like younger brothers, right, and all of them are missing, but like Stannis just you know, he gets reminded of it in the next chapter, but he really forgot that Tom existed for like a good few months there.
0: Yeah. It makes sense. I guess everyone forgets Tommen exists for a little bit there. That's and he true. doesn't.
1: I mean, he becomes the puppet king. And
0: Cersei forgets about Tommen. Even <laughs> Cersei forgets. And I appreciate that, right? Because, so, is kind of realistic in this chapter. This might be due to our post A Dance with Dragons POV reveal, right? Like, after we get through A Dance with Dragons, you realize, huh maybe Melisandra knows some stuff we don't and maybe we know some stuff she doesn't and maybe Melisandra could work with us to do good things could be good she's not so bad after all so big outlook change right but here she says this and i think she's right it reminds me a lot of the moon of the three kings like even if mm. stannis isn't chosen right now as like azora high as a figure of azora high It doesn't matter what happens to him because there are dozens of characters that could take his place, like the Moon of the Three Kings in The Dance of the Dragons, with Tristane Truefire, Gaiman Palehair, and of course the Shepherd. Fire and Blood had a lot of really fun sandbox play from George of him just testing out ideas and character traits on similar characters and just seeing how it worked. And the Moon of the Three Kings specifically is one of those with these three different people who are... All parading as kings in King's Landing, uh, it's it's fun. It, it almost one to one sets up with Tommen, Aegon, and the Sparrow, right? As far as true Truefire, Aegon, possibly Blackfire, Gaiman and Hair as Tommen, the Sparrow, the mm-hmm. Shepherd.
1: Absolutely, and I mean, you know, these aren't the only kings, right? That will pop up in their place. There's just going to be so many. Even a couple, a couple queens, perhaps. Mm. As, I mean, Littlefinger seems to think so. Things are only going to get more interesting from here on out. Melisandre says that sometimes, though, she does get things wrong. However, this time there is no wrong. There's this idea that pardons and envoys will not serve him. No more than leeches. And then Melisandre tries to ply him by saying, If sometimes I have mistaken a warning for a prophecy or a prophecy for a warning, the fault lies in the reader, not the book.
0: I know, this is such clever, I mean, it's very clever to have finally these little hints of Melisandre's readings coming through and how, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm not fallible, I'm also human-ish, like you people. Uh, I may be a priestess, but I'm still made of similar internal things. But at the same time, this is George's clever little nod. If sometimes I've mistaken a warning for a prophecy or a prophecy for a warning, the fault lies in the reader. Not the book. And I just wonder who this is applying to. Could it be you? Could it be someone else? Could it be someone listening? We don't know. The fault lies in the reader. Not the book. Could even be George
1: saying Dothraki instead of Dothraki.
0: Or "brienny," as he wants to pronounce it according to his blog from like the 90s. I think he finally changed his mind. Yeah. That's wrong. Originally, you thought Voidotrice's pronunciation was bad. Uh, no. George was like, it should be pronounced "brienny." Okay.
1: I don't like that. I don't like that. I hate it.
0: (laughs) It reminds me of, like, I don't know, Bryony or something, but, like, yeah, yeah, it's not great, George. It's not great.
1: I mean, uh, okay. But, yeah, absolutely, this is about Melisandre and her readings and and owning up to that. And it kind of makes me think that, you know, maybe she and Stannis did discuss and bicker a little bit about what happened at the Blackwater and that whole prophecy versus warning thing especially because she says that
0: Stannis has to show the realm a sign that proves his power after this and it's obvious like she, she she feels a little fallible at this point and he snorts at this he doesn't have power he says he has 1600 men no coin no glory Selise, of course chooses this time to pipe up saying you have more men than Aegon the Conqueror did you just don't have any dragons ugh <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> He gives her the darkest look. He's like, here's a history lesson, dear waifu. Here are the failures of Aegon the third, the blessed, Aegon the fourth, Irian Bright Flame. And she's like, no, none of them were Valor's chosen one, though. No comet streaked the sky for them. They didn't have light Ring, her husband. And she adds, none of them paid the price. Only death can pay for life. Yes, they want the boy, Stannis
1: realizes and surmises from this conversation. This time, Stannis's history lesson is in fact accurate. I think it's interesting that Stannis brings up Arian's attempt here. Yet actually doesn't end up mentioning Egg, aka Agum V's attempt to resurrect dragons, which I know is like kinda of murky. Like it's not necessarily confirmed and it's not accepted by everyone, you know, historically in, in Westeros, right? But Alistair Florent does actually bring it up with that sort of intimation uh in the dungeons when he's with Davos. And I think that there's very obvious, clear, symbolic comparisons between Arian and Stannis' attempts, right, of bringing back dragons or or doing whatever it takes, especially with the vision that Stannis discloses that he had seen to Davos later in this chapter, you know, and like the idea of setting oneself afire in order to pursue dragons. But I think that there also are some comparisons with Aegon V, who brought near ruin on his house and the deaths of like a majority of his family in the pursuit of dragons as well, just as Stannis seems to kind of be on the path
0: to. Yeah, I think that's a significant omission from his thoughts, and I do wonder if Stannis doesn't confront that because Stannis doesn't want to confront that. I think a lot of people don't want to confront that. I think a lot of people regard Stannis as the king who cared, the, the only good king who wants to drain the swamp right left in the continent. And I think Aegon was that king, right? Yeah. Like he tried to make wonderful policies to help small folk. Uh, And he was the JFK, right? He's the Westerosi JFK. And Aegon, unfortunately, fell to the egg, right? He fell to the call of the dragon. That each of these Targaryens, including Valor, including Arian, uh, including these men Stannis talks about, these same men had that same thought. But Aegon is like, Aegon V is like, nobody really wants to say it, because you read the Hedge Knight, you read the Sworn Sword, you read the Mystery Knight, and you're like, it's Ag, dude. It's Egg. It's a little Ag, that's all. Yeah. No one
1: wants to admit that, Stannis least of all. And I, I think that's the thing, right? First of all, it's not... Like I said, it's not accepted, I think, history history in all of Westeros, like, in-universe, right? It's disputed as to whether or not that's what happened, just like there are disputes as to what really happened in Robert's Rebellion. But for Egg, you know, as you said, he's well-intentioned, right? He pursues these righteous policies, and we have some of that information even from the World of Ice and Fire book. And it seems like, you know, he wanted dragons because he had these ideas of what he wanted Westeros to be that were in many ways better, but a lot of the lords wanted to hold on to their power and were unwilling to make some of those concessions, right? And dragons would have allowed him to do what he wanted. And, you know, this is something that I've been thinking as I was reading this chapter, you know, they they echo later on this idea that Stannis is a just man. And I think George would say that as well. The term that he tends to use, even though he wrote all these books, right? And so he also says that Stannis is a just man by virtue of being the author, But he says Stannis is a righteous man. But I think, you know, if we flip those words a little, right, it's not that the tragedy behind Stannis is very much driven by the fact that Stannis is a just man. But it's also the idea of Stannis is just a man. Galaxy brain.
0: (laughs) No, it's true. And I think there's a lot of that discussion in this chapter, right, of being just a man compared to being a god. Mm-hmm. Especially in the setting, right? In Dragonstone, you can't just live on Dragonstone or have a whole campaign hosted on Dragonstone and not expect to feel its effects.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's something that's going to come forward more in the later books, this idea of what does it mean to have godlike powers what does it mean to have so much power in general and we'll talk about power a little in this episode but for now stannis tells them that he's sick of the boy he was sick of the boy before he was even born and melisandre beckons him to give them edric and they can end this boy's plague on stannis and he'll never have to hear his name spoken again even though they're not using his name right now and axel goes down to one knee He's just like, please, Stannis, please do it. Wake the stone dragon. Burn that kid. He's so into it. And then Selyse is also very into it. She goes to her knees. She's wailing. And she's begging for the foul fruit of Robert and Delena's fornications to be burned. And that if he lifts this shadow from her womb, she's like, if you burn this kid, I know I'm going to pop out some suns. That's not how it works. (laughs) It's not. Celise, it's it's not literally
0: your fault. a gamble. It's literally like a jerk and a gamble. Like, the girl, Celise, honey, 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 we need to
1: chat. I mean, She they stresses don't know. me yeah. out. Yeah.
0: She's very stressful. Celise stresses me out. I am stressed because of Celise. She, like, straight up the language, it's the foul fruit of his fornications. It's really fucked up. What do you think about it? Because all these grown-ass adults in their 40s 30s 50s are all on their knees begging for a 13 year old 12 year old whatever boy who just has a little too much charisma to be burnt right they're like if you burn him we're gonna get giant petrified winged monsters to come to life that's gonna be fun in the winds of winter when this you know progresses because they're not gonna get better is my whole thought right like these characters are not gonna get better
1: and we've already seen them getting worse, right? We covered that in the John chapters, and Salise is pretty insufferable there. Axel yeah. is doing whatever the fuck he's doing. He's wilding out, like, in dance. Like,. You can tell that as he thinks Drunk of this... Drunk on power. Absolutely. And you can tell as he thinks of burning Edric, right? Because he loves burning people. He's, like, all about trying to burn people <laughs> right now on, like, this thing. Straight vibes. Thing. Yeah, vibes. Axel for it. Absolutely. He's got, like, the biggest heart on. He's like, oh, we're gonna burn people. And I'm like, no, Axel, no, no, stop. No. No. Yeah, this is, like, big Ares Targaryen vibes. And Selyse, right? It, so... Selyse is actually a little more interesting than Axel in that I feel that she's kind of a dark mirror in some ways for Stannis' desires. Like, Selyse probably actually is a zealot about R'hllor, but the way that she speaks about Edric makes me think that she's actually more upset about the slight from Robert and mm. Delena. And she's upset in some ways that she just hasn't been as prestigious as she'd like to be in general. Her, her inability to fulfill some of those wifely duties, I guess, in bearing a son as well. Yeah, she absolutely
0: must feel limited, right? Like, she hasn't been able to provide and fulfill those duties. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's interesting that people villainize Solis so much, but yet they praise Stannis, right? Because Stannis' entire power trip is over that Robert never laid a hand towards him, you know? Like, that he could never catch up with Robert's ghost, as we're going to discuss later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's it. And, I mean, Solis feels pretty shitty because, you know, her cousin fucked the king in her marriage bed. I would feel shitty. No no everyone's out there like, yeah, you know, Robert Robert did fuck up and Stanis should feel shitty about how he was treated, but no one gives a shit about Celise. They just are like she's got a mustache. Bad person. Bad person for
1: having a mustache. She's a bad person, but not because of the mustache. Exactly.
0: And it's <sighs> It's a normalized not giving a fuck but I haven't waxed my mustache in years. It's over yeah, no
1: you had one. But yeah.
0: I mean we all do. I have one. We all do, yeah. But, but it's like there. they gave her one over. in the comics, you know. Did they? I didn't actually see it. I didn't look at the Clash of Kings. I only read the Got com- comics. The A got comics.
1: I have some huh. of them. Yeah, I was I had it on my pull list for a while, so I have a couple of the Clash of Kings comics, and Selyse okay. has, a, has her mustache on there.
0: Well, it is a character trait. Stannis rejects Axel and Selyse's begging and pleading once more. He says, Edric is of my blood, and he untangles himself from their grasp, saying, Whatever the truth of the night, the boy is not at fault for what has become of your lives. This is very self-aware from Stanuel. Um, I hope Stanuel keeps this attitude. I know he won't because I've read the books, but uh, this is very self-aware. I just don't know if he feels the same about himself, right? Like, the boy
1: is not at fault for what has become of your lives. Is hmm. this a more exaggerated version of the tension between Catelyn and Ned when it comes to Jon? Uh, especially when Stannis is saying that Edric is of his blood, mm. and Ned himself also saying Jon is of his blood.
0: I literally have never thought of it this way until this right this moment of you saying it, and... It does feel like that, right? Like, especially because Kat as a character feels very unyielding, right? Break before she bends, comes back from the dead, right? Because of thanks to Mm -hmm. the Lord. Interesting. I never put that together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't until now when you were like, he is of my blood. And so I was like, oh, and nephews, you know? Oh, yeah. Nephews. Nephews. Bastards. Bastard nephews. Highborn bastard nephews who are in line for the throne. Things are going to get interesting this year, Eliana. They're going to get interesting. Melisandra put her hand on the king's arm. The Lord of Light cherishes the innocent. There is no sacrifice more precious. From his king's blood and his untainted fire, a dragon shall be born.
0: Stannis did not pull away from Melisandra's touch, as he had from his queens. The Red Woman was all that Celyse was not. Young. Whole body, strangely beautiful with her heart shaped face, coppery hair, and unearthly red eyes. It would be a wondrous thing to see stone come to life, he admitted, grudging. And to mount a dragon. I remember the first time my father took me to court. Robert had to hold my hand. I could not have been older than four, which would have made him five or six. We agreed afterward that the king had been as noble as the dragons were fearsome. (laughs) Stannis snorted. Years later, our father told us Ares had cut himself on the throne that morning, so his hand had taken his place. It was Tywin Lannister who'd so impressed us. His fingers touched the surface of the table, tracing a path lightly across the varnished hills. Robert took the skulls down when he donned the crown, but he could not bear to have them destroyed. Dragon wings over Westeros. There would be such a... That pause. Yo, that's a pregnant pause right there. That is a... If you don't know the truth about Staniel L. Baratheon at this point, this is it. That line lingering in the air. There would be such a Stannis is still lingering on Robert, holding his hand in the crowd Mm -hmm. of King's Landing and the idea of stone dragons and power and being able to command all of the crowds, all of the nation with just his power. That's, there would be such a, oh, yeah, that was a, a fucking passage. That is a. That, like, moment between there would be such a, and before Davos interjects, is, it's telling. Stannis wants power.
1: Yeah, he wants to be admired, he wants to be... Loved. Loved, absolutely. He's already feared.
0: True. He's already feared. In the good way?
1: No, he wants to be loved. Overall. And I think that's what this scene is about, right? Like, I hadn't paid much attention to this, like, specific lines, uh, before And I'll come back to it again in a different context Context in this chapter about Davos' role. Uh, but one of the things, right, it's quite interesting how Stannis's experience here mirrors the way that Jon first saw and perceived Jamie Lannister in Winterfell, right? It's another Lannister, and he's like, that's what a king should look like. And Stannis thinks that when he sees Tywin. And then Stannis, you know, laughs because he's like, oh, we got it wrong, right, at this memory. He actually laughs quite a bit and snorts quite a bit in this chapter. But I do think that it's important for another reason, right? Talking about that love, like we discussed last episode with Quinn, how this big motivating factor in Stannis' life is chasing after Robert's ghost. He brings Robert again over and over and over when it comes to Edric, right? He won't talk about Edric's name. He'll say the boy, but he talks about Robert. That's the big thing in his mind when he thinks about Edric. And I mean, when we leave Stannis here, Davos doesn't think about Robert, but Stannis brings him up all the time in his dialogue. And here he's recalling his relationship with Robert, this really strained brotherhood that they had, and how he felt that Robert disrespected him on a night that should have been about him. And it should have, right? To Stannis' defense and, and, you know, even Salisa's feelings earlier, right? Robert kind of did the equivalent of, like, maybe a wedding guest, right? Wearing white to a wedding and upstaging the bride. It's a dick
0: move. It is a dick move. I mean...
1: It's widely disrespectful.
0: I used to be out there for Robert, like, you know, listen, like, he had a hard
1: life, but
0: as I've gone to understand the Baratheon brothers even further,
1: I'm like, I can't sit for that, boys. I'm sorry. No, I don't, yeah, I don't support Robert. He was, he did a bad job in life. (laughs) He wasn't great, yeah. He fucked up. He had a hard life, too, but that doesn't excuse it. Same with Stannis. Yeah, Robert could have tried harder, and that basically tells him, with his eyes, you could have yeah. tried harder. He like tries he's to my tell him his brotherly as well as he can. disappointment. He's like, "What are you talking <laughs> about? We have responsibilities." But that is not how John Aaron raised us, Robert. Yeah, he's like he had a responsibility to me as my older brother, right? We see the way that Rob yeah. Sark fulfills this for his siblings, but Robert doesn't, and so that Stannis brings up this random ass detail of his first visit to king's landing like about robert holding his hand that makes it so much more significant because he's remembering one of the very very few times before everything went awry with their parents sighing that robert was in fact the hero that he needed his older brother to be he held his little brother's hand and made him brave before they saw the dragon king yeah
0: and that is the saddest part about it like that does make me feel so sympathetic toward robert Maybe it's because I'll never have siblings. I never had them, as you understand, as you have not had them either. It just sounds sad. It sounds like a a sad relationship between having a brother of your blood. I I don't know. Are these words you guys understand? If you're listening, you understand this. I hope you're relating. I hope this is relatable. But coming off of that, the fact that Stannis remembers, you know, and he's laughing coldly that (laughs) it was Tywin. We were so impressed by Tywin. We're coming off of that with Tywin committing some pretty shitty murder right in the last few chapters Uh, at his hand, at his bequest, at his quill. It was Tywin's- He doesn't know, though. He doesn't know, right, but Stannis now is sitting here going, ugh. Of course it was Tywin running King's Landing that we thought Mm -hmm. was so beautiful, acting as if- you know Tywin is so such a distant character to him as if it's such a character that he could never legitimately understand or legitimately estimate Like the responses that Tywin receives or gives he could never understand them or speak that language when Stannis here is considering murder you know I mean it, it, Stannis is choosing violence to use a phrase by Academy Award winning writers David and Dan
1: they David are Joe Academy Award winning writers aren't they
0: i'm sure whatever they probably are i i I was mostly joking but it it is interesting that that's what stannis took from it overall like he graces over these lines about robert and he's like yeah yeah robert held my hand and we were so impressed by tywin isn't that so funny it was tywin davos when stannis is out here considering like do i pull a
1: tywin what do i do
0: what do i do no one knows
1: and I think that's that longing, you know, not just love. He he wanted love from Robert, but he also wanted respect. And I think that's it, right? He's like, well, I can't get respect from love. I'm unloved. People fear me. And so he's like, should I just double down on the fear aspect, right? And get people to respect me that way. And... I think that's something that George is deeply interested in when it comes to the psyche of his characters. We see it come up a couple of times in Fire and Blood, but you can see it in a lot of his previous works prior to A Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. of what happens when, you know, someone is unloved. What do they do to try and get any sort of connection with people? And, you know, I'm going to point y'all to our friend Matt, aka Joe Magician, who did a an analysis on Meat House Man by mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin, which, you know, I think covers a lot of these horrifying ideas, right? And um, I think, I don't think Stannis is trying to meet house man things, but it, it it's a general theme of love and versus fear versus respect, connection. And yeah, right? Like Tywin's horrifying. He does these horrible, like violent things. And, but he still projects the idea of nobility, kingship. And I think that's what happens right in John's first chapter when he sees Jamie too. But we don't know it then, right? We're, we're still trying to unlearn this idea that what looks like power, what looks like gold, isn't necessarily good. Because a few chapters after John sees, like, yo, that's what a king should look like. Jaime throws his brother off a window. There's even that thought of, like,
0: Ares and
1: Robert
0: and Tywin under Ares's reign and John Aaron under Robert's reign, right? Like, before mm. John Aaron died, like, yes, he was effective. But as we learn, he left some things unchecked because, you know, you're only human. Uh, And just a man, just a man, just a man, as we're going to talk about. Well, Davos interrupts this sexy little fantasy that Stannis is having about dragon rings over the city. And he's like, can I speak your grace? And he he prays to the warrior for bravery inside of him to survive what he's about to say. Not R'hllor, does not pray to R'hllor. He tells Stannis, no man is as cursed as the kinslayer in the eyes of God and men. And Melisandre rebuts that Lord is the only god who matters on night, And you don't R'lore doesn't care about this kid. She basically tells him, she's like, deadass, Relore gives no fucks about gives child. fucks in
1: that he's like, this child's gonna be delicious for my flames. Delicious. <laughs> like,
0: we're gonna wrap this kid in some phyllo dough, maybe oh butter that phyllo dough up, put it in... Uh, some feta some spinach right and the kid's gonna be in the oven and he's gonna roast for several minutes right thank for lore thank it sounds delicious i'm very yeah i'm like what did you do what pie. are you doing spinach in this edric storm pie <laughs> is it a book too early are we not at a dance with dragons and skagos yet? no i'm just kidding
1: we're a couple books too early but yeah <laughs> And I, I do think it's significant and kind of a neat little bow on this chapter. Uh, Davos bringing up Kinslang here because it's another one of those big societal taboos in yes. Westeros. And it's a chapter that opens up with one of those taboos being broken the guest right taboo. And then Melisandre's yeah. like, What have small men curse what they cannot understand? And Davos is like, Well, I'm small then. And plays her <laughs> game and asks him to explain such a small man then why she needs edric storm to create this dragon and he tries to make it important be- by continuing to say edric's name because they just keep saying the boy the boy the boy like there's a scene where everyone goes the boy the boy the boy <laughs> like literally in this chapter and Jamis is like it's edric storm and besides the obvious humanizing effect of saying edric storm right the importance of names in in this story in general i think that the story says that there's a lot of importance in a name overall right it's really at the forefront packs the most emotional punch i would say in theon's storyline for me Mm -hmm. uh when it comes to the power that names hold when it comes to humanity and identity and agency but you know it's also significant coming from davos who has struggled to remember his own title his sons had to remind him often and goes between like sir davos lord davos onion knight right he's someone who would be aware of the power Mm -hmm. of names
0: yeah, it's interesting you say that, especially when you brought up some of the Catalan parallels as far as John, right? As far as John being the boy mm. uh, and Ned saying, Do not ask me, he is of my blood. Again, bringing that back into the ring because we're going to talk about John more as he is the chapter directly after Davos' fifth chapter in his Strong of Swords, right? Like, John is the next chapter and the attack on Castle Black. I think that's pretty significant, especially with where these POVs that we're currently encountering, like Melisandre, Davos, and Stan is here, where they're heading. Mm -hmm. Melisandre says, a great gift requires a great sacrifice. Davos is like, I thought Edric was a useless bastard, so which one is it? What's the truth, Melisandre? What's the truth, girl? Right, Davos shows up, wants to sip the tea. And she's like, listen, the power of King's blood is a big deal. Two false kings have died, obviously, because of Baratheon blood. And Davos is like, hmm, but that's two out of three, girl. Again, what's the truth? What's the truth, Melisandra? And Stannis is like, yeah, Davos got you. Got him. What's the truth, Melisandra? Even Stannis is kind of laughing along here. And she responds, if Joffrey dies in the midst of his power, it would show the Lord at work if only that would happen right sidebar if only that would I mean she got him here I do want to get back we didn't get a moment for Melisandre to be like haha got him back got him assholes but she did got him Joffrey did die amidst powers showing the lord at work so good for you Mel
1: yeah she's probably like I did it (laughs) that's something we should get a POV for she's like you motherfuckers didn't believe me but here we are she kind of does I but we'll, do we'll talk about we'll it get next that, chapter. Right? Oh, we'll she get does that later
0: on where she's like, oh yeah, John, Danny, whatever ends up happening, yada, yada, yada. Insert it here. I'm George R. R. Martin. Type, 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 word star. Uh, but this is where Melisandre would be like, haha, got him. I was right. Now I die. Bitches, peace. Oh, for that.
1: Yeah. I thought you meant for for this part specifically where Joffrey dies. And I was like, she does actually do that because she's like, three is three
0: <laughs> in the next chapter. Math.
1: I know that because that was one of my lines. Three is three.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we will get we'll get Melisandre later, being a little gloatful. Not gloatful, necessarily, but a little, like, defensive, right? Like, bitches, I was right. I and, feel that. Uh,
1: I know that feeling. I hope I know that feeling someday. Well,
0: meanwhile, Selyse and Axel agree. They're like, the boy could be dead now, as we speak, which, hysterically, is pretty much happening. Like, chronologically speaking, it's pretty much soon. Uh, Stannis agrees with Davos though he's like kings can count just like smugglers can two is not three class consciousness be stand a king he dismisses Selyse, Axel and Mel keeping Davos who immediately turns the conversation to Edric and how heartbroken his daughter Shireen would be if anything ever happened to this boy Edric Storm
1: I'm telling you it's like a it's like a play this is the moment Selyse, Axel and Melisandre exit stage left
0: yeah, it, it's a uh, pretty, like, also, I do appreciate, Stannis was done with their shit here. Yeah, He was just like, I don't have the fucking hours. I don't have the time. It's over. And immediately, Davos tells him, once they're in good ears, he's like, Adric asks after you every day. He resembles Robert. And Stannis is like, I know that. The boy worships Robert. Do you think I should speak to him? Should I tell him Oh, Robert thought of you in this way? Do you think he'll like that, Davos? When I tell him how Robert thought of him? I don't think so. Pretty logical, in my opinion. Stannis, being a logical king, you drop this king.
1: There's this line here that Stannis says about Edric's name that I thought was really interesting. He says, it proclaims his bastardy, his high birth, and the turmoil he brings with him. And... All of those lines, all, all of those characteristics, I think, also really characterize Jon as well, right? There's a turmoil that comes with him existing, I guess. Just by existing, apparently. And his name being Jon Snow. And a lot of it, though, is also inside of Jon, the turmoil. Because, as we all know from when we covered the John chapters, John is like angsty, moody, teenage boy hours. And that's what he's all about. But also, coming back to Edric Storm and his name... I've never thought about it before, but besides the part where Robert was very rude to his brother on his wedding day and did this-, this really insulting thing, Robert also named his son that looks a lot like him except for the Florent ears, like his bastard highborn son after the brother that he chose. Yeah. Ned. He names him Edric Eddard, Right. So for Robert Not Stannis. to like- yeah, he, he doesn't even name his kid like I don't know, Stanley, Stanley Stanford, Stan, Stan, Stan Stanuel. Stanuel, Stanuel, right? Or something. Like I think that must have graded on Stannis, but I also think that like naming his kid after Stannis, like having been conceived on like Stannis' wedding bed, that, that could have been taken insulting too. Like it can it, it's a double edged sword. But regardless, you know, that, that this kid is Edric Eddard, right? It, it's salt in the wound especially knowing how status feels about ned yeah
0: it also really brings to mind not to bring the danes up (laughs) listen
1: sorry not to bring the danes
0: up real Mm. quick but i do want to say it reminds me of house dane right with Adric dane Uh,
1: yes yes
0: same kid uh just different region hmm Mm. Interested to see how that evolves in the Lindsay winter, and if we get any good parallels to come back to here in Davos five. That is, Stannis says that he'll hear no more of this bastard boy. He says Edric is one boy. He doesn't say Edric. I say Edric. Stannis says the boy is one boy, and his duty is to the realm, not to one boy. He asks Davos how many bastard boys and girls dwell in Westeros. How many men? How many women? And that the darkness will devour all of them regardless of status. Again, a class consciousness king on our hands. Spina is king. Uh, According to Melisandre, though, the darkness will devour all of them, so they're all gonna die the same. Caught. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea, living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs and swears they point to me I never asked for this no more than I asked to be king yet dare I disregard her he ground his teeth we do not choose our destinies yet we must we must do our duty no great or small we must do our duty Stamis tells Dabos Melisandre sees him with Lightbringer but the sword does him no great service, especially not in the Blackwater. It was... weak. A dragon would have done him real service, but not this fake flaming sword.
1: Now that I think about it, the Blackwater was... Maybe they discuss this on that, because I don't know. A battle of symbols, and obviously the Lightbringer one loses versus Renly's armor. Anyway, there's something interesting going on here with Melisandra and Stannis, though, and their interpretations of prophecy... In general, which, I mean, Mel has at least put this disclaimer. She's like, it's faulty, right? It's faulty. I think she should just tell people directly what she sees in the flames instead of trying to give an interpretation of what she thinks it is, but whatever. Um, that's how she is, and she has her reasons, as we see in her POV. I also think it's really interesting in this language here that Stannis says that Melisandra has seen him, allegedly. Him, specifically. Standing against the forces of darkness with Lightbringer in hand... But yet she doesn't ever say that she has visions of him as a king or on a throne, right? Like, in fact, I'm not sure that any of her visions ever say that Stannis himself or even like in the prophecies that Azura High is destined to unite people, much less like specifically Westeros. Though Melisandre just extrapolates that and says, Stannis, this is what you got to do. You have to unite the realm. That's part of it for some reason. And to stand against the Great Darkness. It, it's a good assumption. It makes sense as a logical assumption that one should unite the realm in order to stand against the great darkness, but it's not necessarily part of the prophecy, unlike there are prophecies where it is. The stallion who mounts the world, right? There's a facet to that prophecy of uniting like all the colossars of the world. That's a big uniting, of being a big uniter, right? Azor Ahai doesn't. And I think it's really interesting that Stannis and, to a lesser extent, Melisandre, take the signs that Melisandra has seen and just jump like this, I would say, very kind of thin thread- very fine thread and decide that, well, you know, if, if he's supposed to be a high and have Lightbringer, then he must be the king of all of Westeros and therefore must have the dragons and must kill Edric to do it, considering that the last hero, legend, doesn't have a uniting aspect. It's all about, like, well, this person's fucking alone and the darkness is coming. And especially considering that, like, I will say another prophecy, right? The prince that was promised... It might be the same as many of these prophesied figures. Uh, Melisandre uses it interchangeably with Azor Ahai sometimes. But when it comes to like ruling, I mean, it is called the prince that was promised and not the king.
0: That's an interesting point. And you have that kind of vague idea of Rhaegar taking over as king, right? Removing Aerys too, and mm. stepping in until the council could decide on what would happen to Westeros and maybe a whole new dawn of a day. Would occur, right? Like they were all like, yay, Westeros could have a democracy someday. And then like, it turns out none of the lords actually wanted Westeros to have a democracy, because they didn't think they'd benefit as much. It turns out, and they all put all of their eggs in a different basket, and those eggs were not Aegon eggs, they were Robert Baratheon eggs, and like, some men supported Ares, but like, it turns out by the end of the battle, shit was looking pretty bad for that side, right? And then Robert won. Anyways, sorry, that was a history lesson, a real vague one, but like, yeah, yeah. It seems like the prophecy keeps serving as this really big roadblock to all these big kings. Some kings have other roadblocks, right? Like uh, in the hit TV show that these books were based on Game of Thrones, Rob Stark meets Talisa a little bit earlier than this in the books, and she ends up uh, being his pussy blocker in the show that the books are based on, for example. But here, here it's Edric for Stannis in his mind. We know it's something else, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. And Davos then starts to stress the cost of sacrificing the boy, but Stannis says he knows the cost, he's seen it himself in the flames, and that the night before, he saw a king wear a crown of fire, burning, his crown consuming his flesh and turning him into ash. Do you think this is important? I mean, like, I don't know. It could mean anything, you know. It could mean anything at this point. It could mean anything.
0: (laughs) We get the following passage. The king moved so his shadow fell on king's landing. If Joffrey should die, what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom?
1: Everything, said Davos softly.
0: Stannis looked back at him, jaw clenched. Go, the king said at last, before you talk yourself back into a dungeon.
1: (sighs) Iconic line. That ambiguous wording is just always just shush kiss. You know, as Joffrey, of course, is one of the many bastards that's alluded to in that sentence when it comes to discussing the life of one bastard boy against the kingdom, And the moral question of, like, is it right to kill Joffrey? Because that happens in this book, everyone. And he's essentially of an age with Edric Storm. 286 AC versus 287 AC, respectively. And then after him, Tommen, another even more innocent bastard boy. Actually innocent bastard boy.
0: And there's a certain Night's Watch effect, right? Uh, This chapter, like we said, comes right before a Jon chapter. And it helps to reinforce this framework of bastard boys against the many bastards in the world, leading the Night's Watch, who we're about to see all these people right now, Stannis, Davos, Mel, Selyse, Axel, we're going to end up seeing them move to the wall or move to the north. And there's a lot in this chapter coming back to that moon of the three kings and some of what you're saying that reminds me of these golden shrouded children, right? Myrcella, Tommen both likely to be crowned and killed for being quote-unquote pretenders. But as we see from their natures versus Joffrey, they're bright, sweet children. There's literally not much wrong with them besides their family is kind of crazy and that might affect them a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying Cersei's parenting might rub off, but it might rub off. And, I don't know, they could grow under the right tutelage and care in the show, we see mercella kind of grow a little quicker and without really any explanation. But in the books, we learn that Mercella's is very clever, right? Like, she's great at Savas. She has great logic skill. If you're playing The Sims 4, she could rule. Like the Dornish maybe intend her to do, at least momentarily. We'll see. We'll see. Giving Edric a chance at living his life is kind of the least Stannis could do. He already killed off one of his kin, right? Renly. So who does Stannis plan to have take the big lands once he gets them, right? Like when he finally gets the glory, when he has control over the nation, who's his Stormlord? He has no one. He's isolated. He's alone at this point. Edric could actually strengthen his rule when used politically. He's a bastard. His dad's dead. There's no chance of him coveting the throne. Uh, But Stannis doesn't see that now. Right? He sees the light or or the fires. He sees the fires of Relore and what they can grant him. He doesn't see what Edric could do without dying for him.
1: Yeah. Davos bows, but Stannis has already seemed to forget him. He walks the wind snapping banners along the way and the smell of salt in his nostrils. And there's this really beautiful metaphor in the text here as Davos is leaving. Sometimes the storm winds blow so strong, a man has no choice but to furl his sails. Aye, your grace. Davos bowed, but Stannis had seemingly forgotten him already. So, I just kind of really love that metaphor of the storm winds blowing so strong and, and what Davos does in this moment. And I just like that idea, right, the, of the Brathian brothers as these different storms. I'm sure people have talked about this before, and I'm sure I'm not the first one, but I think we can see how easily, right, I, I mean, it's pretty clear how Robert embodies this. He's the devil, the trident, thunderous laughter, right, imagery that we'll see with Lionel Brathian. typical what you think of when you think Brathian, right, laughing storm shit. I would argue that Renly was also a storm. Perhaps in a way, the spring showers that would bring flowers, the Tyrells, soon after, especially when you consider how Catelyn would think of him as still green, these summer nights when it came to battle. And then here we see Stannis also as a storm, perhaps seemingly quiet, but with winds that blow strong. And I do think it's fascinating, right, that a storm is what is threatening to undo him in dance. There's a lot of irony with characters and their sigils, after all, in a dance with dragons, right? And uh, those undoing them with Tyrion suddenly being at risk of being eaten by a lion. To backtrack to what you said about Renly,
0: does that mean he's like an anime intro? He is. I could see- well, with the rose petals flowing behind him and being all like, ugh, card captors.
1: Their entire retinue, like all of his party, right? Yeah. They're like that. Like, Garland Tyrell's got shoujo flowers. Marjorie's got shoujo flowers. Loris does. Renly does. Yep. I'm sure Edric, like, a little bit too. Like, more innocent. Like, maybe leaves, but Mace Tyrell doesn't. Oh, definitely does. She's got the rose thing definitely going on. She's
0: got, like, the dark ones to show, like, mm. she's been there, bitch. Yes. Huh. I like that. I do. <laughs> the, shoujo, the shoujo anime
1: opening for them.
0: For the Baratheon Bros. I love it. Who needs venture bros when you have Baratheon Bros?
1: Their opening wasn't like this. I'm trying to remember the card capture soccer opening. Like, was it the I'm confusing it with the Indyasha one. I know I am. Card yeah. I used to have all the
0: cloud cards. I don't know what happened to them. It must have been during a move I lost them. I should order them again.
1: I have Sakura Etsy. cards somewhere in my mother's home. Oh, the cloud. okay.
0: Yeah. Everything that's happening at court with Stannis right now is kind of a nightmare for Davos and he immediately dissociates and thinks about sailing his boat home to Maria, to his little ones, to the pure ones left. A thought that's become more prominent lately, every day, every night he just thinks about grabbing Devon and going home. I wish he would but he thinks that he can't because he's a lord, he's the king's hand and he mustn't fail and he Stares up at the walls of Dragonstone, the gargoyles of Dragonstone, but they are a thousand different creatures, sprouting from the battlements, surrounded, of course, by dragons. The Great Hall is a dragon on its belly, its doors an open mouth. The kitchen's curled-up dragon in a ball, smoke and steam vented in its nostrils. Towers are hunched dragons, or poised-for-flight dragons. Small dragons frame the gates, claws emerge to grasp torches and walls, stone wings enfold the smith in armory, tails from arches, bridges, stairs. I love this and I want mm-hmm. to say that my favorite Disney song of Ice and Fire Take is of course Hellfire from Notre Dame, the best. Stannis, Mel, Shireen, Davos, Edric song. That is that is an A song now. I'm sorry, Disney. It's the best song, but we've it's taken the best it. Song. It's a swap now. Uh, No, all lightheartedness aside from the hellfire, but the imagery of Dragonstone is this beautiful gothic architecture, and it does remind me of the real Notre Dame, with vaulted ceilings, heavy stone ornamentation. Makes me think of these frivolous dragons all over everything, and in Notre Dame, Hugo compares the architecture to the old way, actually. He says that Notre Dame's architecture is presented as chunky, He calls it outdated, it never changes, right? It's bulky, stony, weird dragons, and it never changes against a city that has most certainly changed, most certainly is changing. Kind of like how Dragonstone is a stand-in for the Targaryens as the old way there, right? Uh, And their legacy, the giant beasts that, no pun intended, cement (laughs) their legacy (laughs) as well. (laughs) I'm <laughs> hired. I'm I'm hired. I'm so hired. Stimulus is pro. <laughs> in Notre Dame, this is presented as something that's destined to be replaced by science and progress, right? You get the old chunky style of the cathedral, and it's it's said it's going to be replaced. I think that's symbolic of Rhaegar's transition to a replacement for the Targaryens, right? This is Rhaegar's kind of become. A replacement for Targaryens, Valyrians, for dragons. This is a bargain bin version that any man who is bold and powerful and daring enough could grasp and wield it. Right? Mm. It used to be if you were so lucky to birth your dragon eggs, you'd have power. Uncontrollable power in some attempts, but power. Davos surveying the gargoyles and monsters and demons at Dragonstone also reminds me a bit of Quasimodo looking up at these gargoyles that were supposed to ward off unwanted demons, unwanted monsters, and Quasimodo feels protected by them. It reminds me a bit of Bran back at Winterfall, dreaming of gargoyles coming to get him. Davos now, here at Dragonstone, is staring up at them and thinks, what if the dragons could come to life? What if they had been turned to stone? He thinks that he'd heard rumors the wizards of Valyria did magic with Firestone. Of course, they're Valyrian tricks like a potter would play, but now it's kind of hitting differently
1: for him. Now he's like, what if it's real, though? It probably was, but mm-hmm. it's interesting what you're saying about R'hllor as a stand-in. You know, this new power dynamic as opposed to the Valyrians, because I think what's enticing about lore and, and prophecy in general, right? Like, the Targaryens put in a huge amount of effort to build this narrative of power around themselves, right? I think that the Jaharis and Alicent chapters in Fire and Blood really showcase the effort that was put in to try and cement this story that people bought into about the Targaryens that allowed them to be able to rule and, and live as they did. It's part of why Varys is putting in all of this effort, right, into building a story around his Aegon that he's going to present to everyone. But for Stannis and for people who believe and have decided to believe in R'hllor, R'hllor p- provides a convenient and already, like, pre-made template that you can just step into this story of power and be the chosen one. All the prophecies kind of do that. Yeah. You know, speaking of power and the architecture here, first of all, I can't get over the, like, the terminology of chunky. It makes me think of like this chunky soup for some Stop, reason. I'll explain god. that story later. Have
0: you ever had chunky soup when it's cold? Wait, what? What about cold chunky soup? Imagine it not heated up. Goodbye. I don't want that. It's too late because that's what I'm imagining. Imagine <laughs> chewing chunky cold soup. That's how I feel about Stannis. Oh my god. I said what I said. Keep it in.
1: Uh, I'll keep it in. I mean, some of it could work, like chunky gazpacho, but I don't know. Oh, I love gazpacho, but I don't love Spanish. I love gazpacho, yeah. Oh, and borscht. I like borscht.
0: Love a borscht.
1: (laughs) But anyway, you know, (laughs) speaking of the Great Hall, right, and and the architecture of Dragonstone, I never really thought about or realized that the Great Hall was in the shape of a dragon before and that they all just, like, eat inside of the dragon's belly is interesting. I think that there's a uh, multiple ways that the dragons function narratively in this story. Uh, one is, like, on a more literal level, people have discussed them as weapons, right? There have been people who have likened them to weapons of mass destruction. Adam Feldman talks about them as, as symbolic of violence and the choice to do violence. Uh, I think there's a couple of other things that they stand for as well. But here, specifically, Stannis is thinking of the possibilities that a dragon could bring to their campaign, and it's in the same vein of how many view the dragons and what they promise in the story, though they never really vocalize or articulate it as such, that the dragons represent power. Having dragons, or power, opens doors for people that were not possible before, even when it's just as a symbol, again, that narrative, that story you build around yourself. For example, Daenerys is a widowed Khaleesi, right, in the first book, and is about to have her life taken from her. She's about to be forced to join the Dosh Killeen, despite her own desires, until she births dragons, and then they're like, wait, that's amazing. Let's not (laughs) take her to the Dosh Killeen. Let's follow her instead. And we see the effect that the prospect of power has on Stannis. You know, you were talking about, like, how he has that really pregnant pause as he thinks of dragons flying over Westeros, right? It's seducing him into that thinking. He's like, What if? What if? though when it comes to when it comes to edric storm he wouldn't have to give pardons anymore right or deal with this tedium of politics if he had dragons right and the architecture of dragonstone shows what the consequences of that power are as they dine in the great hall power like fire consumes and santa sees where that road leads as he tells davos but he's still gonna go down that road anyway like a moth to the flame and I'd even add that the fact that dragons are
0: overtaking the entire building in every mm. single way, that feels significant, right? Like, everything they could have accomplished was overtaken by the power struggle for dragons.
1: Absolutely, and that's a big part of what the dance, right, in Fire and Blood is about. Yes.
0: Salador son arrives at his side while Davos is deep in thought. Salador has forgiven Davos for his treachery it turns out, but he won't forget that Claw Isle could have given him and his wives and concubines really good retirement. Now, Salador doesn't get fine Celtigar wines or a sea eagle, and he doesn't get Celtigar's magical horn to summon krakens hmm. from the deep hmm. Hmm. Interesting. and stop the Tyroshi. Interesting. Interesting! That is a exclamation Think of all point. the
1: olives he could buy with all of these. Oh, olives mm. with the fine Keltigar wines. All of that.
0: But Magic Horn. He slips his arm into Davos's, telling him, you know, Davos, you're not very loved by the Queen's men, and Davos is like, it's so funny you say that, because while I'm not loved by the Queen's men who follow the Lord of Light, the rest of Dragonstone has gone back to the gods they've worshipped their whole life, saying Stannis was ensorcelled. He was bowing to demons of shadow. He failed them in battle. Very dramatic stuff, and I love the next part because George takes this as a springing point to tell you the story he likes to tell, what's coming, before it actually comes. Here the viewer doesn't know Davos is going to spring Edric. In fact, everything in this chapter has said Stannis seems pretty cool, like he's not going to kill Edric, right? Like he's like, that's still my blood, I can't do that. It builds up anticipation, right? By the end of the chapter. You and I are like, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? We don't get the resolution until next chapter. It's what's called analepsis, which is a literary device, which in a narrative, a past event is narrated at a point later than its chronological place in a story. And he reiterates and resolves this analepsis in Davos 6. It's an entire backwards walk, right? We start Davos 6 with, here's what's happening and here's how it's happened. So, very interesting to watch how George formats these chapters, but here we have Davos talking about the men who weren't believers in R'hllor, right? Powerful men that followed Stannis very carefully the same way that Davos once followed Stannis, and now Davos is choosing them how he would have chosen his crew. Sir Gerald Gower, who fought on the Blackwater, but after thought R'hllor was feeble because he, they lost to a dwarf and a dead man, Sir Andrew Eastermont, the king's cousin and past squire, the bastard of Nightsong, who had kept Stannis safe in the rear guard, who also worshipped the warrior, and Davos calls these men king's men, not queensmen.
1: So Davos is a little better at politicking than he thinks it is, right? It's it's, he thinks about it in those metaphors from when he was at sea, and Davos as the smuggler, right? He he talks about needing to know tides when it comes to men's attitudes that it was important for one's safety as a smuggler, and I think that's really interesting when you consider Davos's qualifications as a hand, and politicking, because he's struggling right now with a separate faction, and again, those Queen's men, and he's trying to build his own allies, and it really, really reminds me of Ned's situation in King's Landing, when he was wrestling with the Queen's men, who were the Lannisters, Uh, And those queensmen also had their clutches in another Baratheon, not this time to that Baratheon's fervent desire for approval, but rather his apathy, because Robert's like, I don't give a fuck. And Davos building kingsmen, it's kind of like how the Brotherhood Without Banners, maybe, came together, and how they talked about themselves. They said that they were kingsmen, even after the death of Robert, and we'll see them in this book, with Arya's story, of course. That's really thoughtful. I didn't really think about that, that
0: Davos is building Kingsmen, right? Ex-Kingsmen, when you really think about it, because Robert's gone, Stannis will be gone by the time. Well, Stannis is gone from this transaction, is really the important thing as we go through it. This is like a many heist happening in the shadows in the background. Mm-hmm. Davos compliments Salador's leadership. He says it inspired him to choose this crew who knows how to hold their tongue. And Salador responds that a crew with no tongues is even better, my friend. These are the first references to Euron's plot that we kind of get in the story. Uh, The first references to the Kaltigar Horn, Mm happen right? The ones that summon krakens, just happened a little bit ago. And easily lost against this whole idea of the Night's Watch with the Horn of Winter, right? Like, this is an easily misconstrued thought, but here... Salador says that a crew with no tongues is better. That's great mm-hmm. groundwork for Euron's entrance through a feast for crows. George was definitely foreshadowing here.
1: Yes. Yes. Especially with like Salador thinking that's an interesting idea. <laughs> but Salador's not Yeah, this is evil. It. He's like It's just not good. Yeah, he's though. like chaotic neutral, maybe, but he's not like and yeah, he's not the only one who thinks that works, right? He, he does think no tongues with no one able to read or write is better. But I mean, Varys does it too. Solidor begins to speculate, asking Davos if the king will give the boy to the flames or if he's not, and Davos reaches for his lost finger bones instinctively. And Solidor thinks, you know, one dragon could end this great war. But Davos does not think that Stannis will do it. He's like, Renly was a traitor, but Edric is just a little innocent boy. Salidor slaps Davos' back mm. saying that they'll be seeing well maybe Davos will be because Salidor is like, I'm going back to sea, peace out. He congratulates Davos on <laughs> growing so very great, and then he like gets somber because he cares about his friend Davos, right? And he's like the higher a man climbs, the farther he has to fall. And I mean that's gonna come back into play with a couple of characters in this book series many of them. Would you say that pride
0: goeth before a fall? Oh, yeah. there's
1: that. I was also thinking quite literally, but yes. Davos knows he's risen too high, though, and he's he's really worried about it, especially as he's climbing up the steps of the Sea Dragon Tower. He's like, this is a high tower, and he can't read or write, and he's like, the lords must hate me. He had mentioned this to Maester Pylos, who told him that a captain must navigate treacherous waters and this is the same davos is like "Mm, i don't know about that and responds that if the kingdom were (laughs) ship, it would be sinking and he's like but how do i blow lord stannis to his throne are we
0: not doing phrasing anymore because how do i blow lord stannis to his throne i'm just saying it feels just there's a lot of that
1: in davos's chapters
0: It feels purposeful, because
1: George apparently had a man crush. I mean, that's how Ned and Robert's interactions feel sometimes. It
0: makes sense.
1: Asha Greyjoy, though, she would agree with Pylos's takes on a captain ruling his ship, because she says as much, she's like, ah, captains are the kings of their own ships. And regarding knowing how to navigate a storm, I would say that Davos himself thinks that the king is a storm right now.
0: (laughs) Anyway... Um, it's true. And, well, in real time, Maester Pylos laughs at all this. He's like, see, Stannis knows what he has in you. His grace knows what he has in you. And Davos is still a little glum. Pylos gives him yet another history lesson, reminding him of Ryan Redwine's failure as hand, although he was successful as a knight. Otto Tower, Miles Smallwood, all these failures, but... There were some really weird successes, Davos, you have a chance, like Septim Barth, a blacksmith's son plucked from a library. Davos is like, yeah, sure. But internally, he thinks, sure, this history rocks, I just can't read any of it. Pylos offers to teach him to read, and so now, every day, Davos has been climbing Sea Dragon Tower to frown over parchments and tomes, puzzle out words, and feel kind of like a fool. His son Devon is not yet twelve and yet was laughing him in reading, and Shireen and Edric also seem to read like they've done it their whole lives. He feels like a child, but he persists anyways because he thinks that a king's hand should read. He thinks of Maester Crescent as he walks the stairs. Apparently they had been a trial for Maester Crescent after he broke his hip later on in life. Maester Pylos, though, is young and clever and well-meaning. But Davos kind of thinks too young, right? Like that Stannis certainly isn't confiding in this young man, like he once had confided in Maester Cresson and his wisdom. As Davos nears the top of the stairs, he hears a jingle of bells, knowing Patchface is waiting for Shireen at the top. Patchface's face is tattooed in red and green motley, and he wears a rack of deer antlers strapped to his bucket, bells hanging from the tines. Patchface had been exiled from Shereen's lessons because he was too noisy, by the way. oh, Patchface says, Under the sea, the old fish eat the young fish, I know, I know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He mutters it at Davos' entrance, right? Like, Davos enters and that is his entrance music. And Davos responds that up here, the young fish teach the old fish, which is of course very clever because that is how he feels right? Entering these lessons where he has to read where these kids are laughing. It's also way cuter than like what Patchface said. Patchface is creepy bullshit. I know. He's not. Patchface, we have to work on your delivery. You know, the old fish eat young fish thing is very interesting in the perspective of Walder Frey with Captain Rob, Mm. right? And Edmure. Uh, and Stannis trying to sacrifice Edric, and in lieu, Shireen maybe, definitely eventually, and even of the upcoming Euron and Valen young fish, old fish thing going on. It does remind me also of old Nan, hmm. weirdly enough. She mentioned this about the long night away, big fat! All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Old fish eating the young fish.
1: I think that's interesting in that, like, so under the sea, people have discussed that when Patchface says under the sea, he means, like, after people have died, right? In the afterlife or death or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the old fish eating the young fish. You bring up Walder Frey and Cat and Rob, but Catelyn Stark, nay Tully... Is an old fish and hmm. eats the life force in the way of a younger fish, Beric Dondarrion, and then comes back to life from the dead.
0: Mm, and he is a young fish. He's V young. I mean, he's 21 when Sansa and Jane are trying that to That
1: is young. Christ. To be 21. Elyria Dane,
0: 14
1: years old, is like, my fiancé. And he's like, I'm dead. Oh... <sighs> yeah but no one really knows but maybe now she she should just live like he's dead he is now Valyria Dane should do what she wants <sighs> well Davos is having a hard time doing what he wants right because he never felt quite as ancient as he did when trying to read Pylos he thinks is young enough to be his son he finds pleasure, though, in seeing his own blood, Devon, mingling with a princess and a king's bastard, and thinks of one day Devin's eventual lordship, Lord of the Ravenwood. Davos is more proud of Devon's eventual title than he is of his own. And Devin reads, writes, he uses a sword and lance, and he was also very godly. And Davos is probably like, sword and lance, awesome, godly, he's like, hmm. <laughs> Son's like, preaching to him, like, my brothers have ascended to the Hall of Light to sit beside the Lord. Devin had said when his father told him how his four elder brothers had died, I will pray for them at the night fires, and for you as well, Father, so that you might walk in the light of the Lord till the end of your days.
0: Little Nark, <sighs> Poor Devin. Fucking mini-ass narc.
1: You know he, he is. He, he is. just has
0: that Nark voice. Well, I just oh, kind of
1: gave it to him, but he does. He kind of does. Poor he does, Devin. That's his
0: voice now. And Devon greets Davos on the entrance to the classroom. He is a good boy here. Davos sees much of his lost son, Dale, in him, the elder. The same hair, the same eyes, the peach fuzz on the cheeks. He's the oldest child of the three at the table, but Edric's Storm towers over him by three inches, definitely proving he's Robert's son, right, build-wise, and... He has cold black hair, deep blue eyes, the mouth, the jaw, the cheekbones. Only the ears are reminiscent of the Florent in him, and some even said Edric looked more like Robert and Renley than Stannis ever had. Damn. Oops. Damn, that's cold. It is cold. That's some- poor course Stannis, you know. You gotta feel bad for him, I guess. Someone has to.
1: Well, Crescent and, and Davos did. You know who I feel bad for yeah. right now? I feel bad for Devin, you know, he's going through that phase of puberty in yeah. regards to like his facial hair, and he's like, he's got that peach fuzz, that wispy stuff, and he's like real proud of it, and I'm, you know, dear listeners, I don't know how old all of you are, right, if you are like around this age of like Devin and Edric, right, and, and you're, you're starting to get some peach fuzz, and you're like, for sure, I'm definitely gonna grow it out, and it's like wispy and stuff. You know, you don't have to listen to me, right? Don't... I'm, I'm just a random person on the internet. Take control of your own body. Be proud of your body. But at the same time, like, I know you. I know you think you look cool. But I just want to tell you that I, I'm i warning you that you don't. But again, you know, maybe you don't want to listen to me. Some lessons have to be learned the hard way. Um, by ourselves, I have learned my share of my own bad appearance lessons throughout my own puberty. But... I just wanted to give wisdom. The old fish teaching the young fish.
0: And this is just me, but do you think we have that many
1: eleven to twelve year olds listening to our
0: podcast, which is an explicit podcast. I don't
1: know, but we do have children. Remember one of our listeners said that their daughter hurt us and then like their car got oh. cut off and they said, How dare they? You now, I guess
0: great or small, we must all do our duty, Alana. I'm
1: trying to do my duty right now. Edric
0: courteously greets Davos as he arrives, asking after his uncle, the king, and Davos is like, oh no, he's well, there, there's no reason to burden this boy, so he just says, he's well, he's well, Edric. They had finished their lesson, Shireen announced they had read about King Darren I, who went to war and conquered Dorne, the young dragon. Princess Shireen was a sad, sweet, gentle child, far from pretty. Stannis had given her his square jaw and Selyse her florent ears, and the gods in their cruel wisdom had seen fit to compound her homeliness by afflicting her with grayscale in the cradle. The disease had left one cheek and half her neck gray, cracked, and hard, though it had spared both her life and her sight. Devon says Darin worshipped false gods, but he was a great king otherwise, and brave in battle as well. I guess when you think about it, the same could be said of Stannis.
1: It's probably what they are saying about Stannis amongst the small folk, as as Davos has pointed out. Yeah. Edric agrees, but tells him Robert was braver, and that Dara never won three battles in one day. Wide-eyed, Shereen and Devin listen while Edric recants... Lords Grandison, Catherine, and Fell, oh. falling at Summerhall to Robert, that Robert had slain Lord Fell in single combat, capturing his son Silver Axe. Wait, sorry, was that Grandison, Catherine, and Fell, Eliana? Ah, oh, yes, your, your BFFs. Oh my god. I never remembered them. I remembered them this time because I remember you chastising me for never remembering them, and that's how I remembered them.
0: Cycle continues. It
1: does. Uh, Devin looks to Maester Pylos, asking if that really happened, and Edric Storm says, I said so, didn't I? (laughs) He says that no one ever beat his father.
0: That's me as a kid, man. I was bossy. Uh, Pylos tells him, don't boast, Edric. King Robert suffered many defeats, just like any other man. And Lord Tyrell bested him once at Ashford, and he lost many tourney huts. Edric argues, and he's like, Robert killed Prince Rhaegar, and he won more than he lost. Pylos agrees but says I must divert my attention to Lord Davos, he's been waiting patiently, we'll read more of Darren's conquest tomorrow. The children say goodbye courteously, and Pylos offers Davos the book on the conquest of Dorne as well, saying that it has an elegant simplicity, it was rich with blood, battle and bravery. His son liked it, he may as well.
1: Pilus is such a patient teacher. Oh my god. I will say in this chapter, you know, it's interesting that they're discussing Darren the Young Dragon here, considering that there are some similarities between him and his campaign in Dwarren and, and Rob Stark, whose death, of course, opens this chapter. And I kind of wonder if there are any lessons for Stannis in the histories of Darren the Young Dragon as well.
0: You mean bringing a false god? To a nation, a very isolated nation with different politics from the rest of Westeros, and only
1: holding it for a little bit And Mm, a difficult, a very difficult military campaign. From it seems, I mean, I don't know anything about
0: environment.
1: Yeah,
0: Um, uh, it felt like the environment was doing them in the entire time they attacked in Dorne. Am I right in that that they disappeared in the sands, the snows, sands kind of like snow.
1: Actually, it's not at all. Mm-hmm. I, I always want no. to make that take, but when I really but think about fine. it deeply, and touching sand and touching snow, I'm like, they're actually really different.
0: But a large mass of them could do you in. They that could. for sure. Davos reminds Maester Pylos his son is not quite twelve, but he is the king's hand. He asks for another letter. There have been no new letters since last time he had his lessons, but... Maester Pylos brought him an older one, a square of wrinkled parchment. He opens it up, and he says that reading is hard on his eyes. Sometimes he wondered if the Citadel offered a champion's purse to the maester who wrote The Smallest Hand. I thought that was very good. Davos begins to sound out the letters, and finally he comes up with, To the five kings, the king beyond the wall comes south. He leads a vast host of wildlings. Lord Mormont sent a raven from the haunted forest. He's under attack. Other birds have come sense with no words. We fear Mormont's slain with all his strength. Suddenly, Davos realizes what the fuck he's reading, seeing the wax that had sealed these letters were black, and asks if King Stannis had seen this. Pylos explains Alistair had read it, discussed it with the queen, and when asked if he wanted to reply, said... Don't be a fool, Pylos. This is great juxtaposition, because the next chapter we have John, who's also a lower-born man who's risen to power, right, in the Night's Watch, working with a young man from Old Town, Satin, mm. right? Davos and Pylos come back. The next chapter is the attack on Castle Black, as we'll mention soon, and Molestown is a light. Jon finds Egret dead, etc., Here, back in Davos' chapter, Alistair had said his grace didn't have men to fight his own battles, let alone them. And Davos thinks, you know, this is true enough, but the verbiage of the letter probably would have pissed Stannis off.
1: I mean, I don't think it would have. It's interesting. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty, like, enoct letter, right? It's a pretty respectful letter. That's right least Sam remembered to let the birds out. He's like, oh, we gotta free the birds, but forgot to tie anything to- Free, <laughs> yeah, free them! Yeah, forgot to tie anything <laughs> onto them, but at least people were like, this seems bad. <laughs> Someone thought this is bad. Anyway, coming back to Stannis's memory of visiting King's Landing and seeing Tywin, and, you know, Davos ponders on how to sway Stannis, right, in the politics of the Queen's men and the King's men throughout this chapter, and we see that a hand can have such a huge influence right, over how a king rules and what decisions are even like put in front of them, affecting things, right? I, we see it in Axel's desire to become hand and why he wants to win through Alistair's refusal to bring this letter from the Night's Watch to Stannis and the impact that a hand can have. And Davos is, of course, as we know, pushing himself to read, knowing that he has to be informed to be an effective hand. And... I love that Pylos provides him some great examples and lessons to him on what makes a good hand. He's like, it's not birth, it's not like lots of schooling unless it's like a good education. He's like, Septon Barth, like you, was lowborn and he was an amazing hand. And again, I'm like a stand now. I also loved Crescent. I don't know what's happening to me. Um, considering a lot that anecdotes in the liberal arts about Tywin. <laughs> shows his influence and power considering that this anecdote about Tywin that shows his influence and power and that he was mistaken for the true king I think we should be reading Davos' own story within the, that context of, of that mistake right that Stannis made um, and as he tries to wrap his mind around what it means to rule how to be a king versus a captain it's just interesting Tywin's another hand Davos is a hand amazing Yeah,
0: and what comes next in terms of how we look at Davos' POV is something that I find really interesting. Uh. He first says, Only a starving man begs bread from a beggar. He says this to Pylos and then follows it up, saying, This is something my wife once said to me. He drums his fingers on the table and starts to think about the first time he saw the wall himself. He was younger than Devon. He was serving aboard the Cobblecat under Roro Uhoris. There's a couple things here that I really like. I love that Maria is a part of Davos's psyche. She continues to be brought up very subtly throughout this chapter a few small ways, but she's a part of him in general. Uh, We're about to talk about his nature, but she's fundamentally why he is the way he is, right? Like, this obviously affected Davos. She's kind-hearted. She at one point told Davos that men who beg are hungry. Uh-huh. Like, they wouldn't be begging. They wouldn't push their pride to side if they weren't hungry, Davos. She once had this argument with her husband, is what I'm telling you. So we all really appreciate Maria. But what comes next is also interesting as far as Davos' timeline. He had sailed past Skagos into the Shivering Sea, bringing all sorts of steel to trade for furs, ivory, amber, and obsidian. Mm-hmm. But on the way back, he was herded by three black galleys into Eastwatch. They lost their cargo, and Roro Ihorus lost his head for selling arms to the free folk.
1: I want to point out that his name is a Roro because he's on a fucking boat. I'm not joking. I'm pretty sure George did this on purpose. Davos smuggled and traded at Eastwatch back in the day on his own. And the Black
0: Brothers were actually his enemies. They were hard enemies, but he calls them good customers if you have the right cargo. When Davos took their coin, he always remembered Roro's head rolling across the Cobble Cat's deck at Eastwatch. There's so much happening here about Davos. He wasn't even 12 when he sailed with the Tai Roshi Captain, Roro euphorus the blind bastard who was neither blind nor bastard born. Uh, he wasn't even 12 when he sailed on the cobblecat. Roro sells arms to the free folk. He gets busted by the Ice Cops, right? They execute him. This is like 272-ish AC. Davos spends the next decade getting his own ship, becoming a badass. Stannish shit happens in the rebellion in the eighties. Somehow he has seven kids and is married. Dale is at least sixteen to eighteen, hoping for kids on the way. So Mario pops out a bunch of kids in the two eighties through three hundred AC. And we come back to that line. He had sailed past Skagos into the Shivering Sea, bringing all sorts of steel to trade for furs, ivory, amber, and obsidian. The fact that Davos was under someone's tutelage on a boat, Roro Horus, to be specific, learning and going with him into the Shivering Sea at age 12, understanding the, the coldest secrets the North had to offer on the water... And trading for Obsidian, that feels significant. Uh-huh. And it does feel like something we're going to come back to. We don't actually know if Stan has sent Davos with anything. It doesn't seem that he was sent with anything but his seal. And Wyman, we don't know if Wyman has sent Davos on with anything. We just know that Davos has a treacherous trip ahead of him. So I do think that Davos is going to be the POV. We get a huge unearthing about Obsidian through that he mm. will go to Skagos and he will not come back with Rick on as we'll discuss during our Dance with Dragons analysis much further, but he will come back with Obsidian with its secrets. What struck me most interesting here though beyond that is we start the story of A Song of Ice and Fire out with another preteen boy who becomes disabled in his hero's journey, seeing someone executed. Right, there are a few elements coming to play with Bran versus Davos here. This is a bit of a different scenario, but Mm. young Davos watching someone of the Night's Watch execute someone outside the law, also Davos' kind of mentor at the time, instead of a lord and a deserter in the Bran-Edward situation. This is a dynamic that Davos is also seeing happening often in Stannis' camp as well. You know, constantly. He's seeing people burned as deserters, etc. In response to this story where... Davos is talking about, you know, this is what I learned on this boat. He responds, not with this story, but playing into Westerosi norms instead. Davos responds, and we know that Davos was not raised within Westerosi norms, right? I mean, he was raised differently on Roro Yuhoris' ship, a Tairoshi who has instilled values in him that we learn most of his ship values and his crew values come from this man. He chooses to tell Maester Pylos he met free folk as a boy and says they were fair thieves, bad hagglers, and one stole their cabin girl, but overall these free folk seemed like any other men you'd meet. So Davos doesn't tell Pylos about the story of the men at Eastwatch who beheaded his Obi-Wan Kenobi. This interests me. This is a natural gut smuggler reaction him, right? He's trying to assimilate among these lords and maesters and throughout this chapter he consistently is repositioning himself as this is what the king's hand should know Mm -hmm. this is how the king's hand should act this is what I should learn and this is what I need to be educated on
1: yeah I I think this is a really great laying out of Davos' backstory um with Roro your boat your Horus and well (laughs) Chloe's like I can't even bother firing her I'm just quitting (laughs) But, you know, you were saying, you know, one of his first lessons, right, as you said, similar age as Brand watching his mentor get executed, not only is it the reverse of what Brand saw, right, in terms of a, an outlaw getting beheaded, and, and he was breaking the law, right? So we kind of see that Davos is learning that sort of moral code, that he is living outside of the law, his profession is outside of the law, and that there are consequences, which could le- could provide some understanding of why Davos is like, yeah, it's chill, I guess, that Stannis took my fingers. But besides the the mirror to Bran, like that reversal, it also reminds me a little of Sansa then, witnessing her mm. father being beheaded in front of her. Like, was Roro a father figure to Davos? And, you know, Davos, as you said, right, he's trying to live up to what he thinks that a king's hand should be, what wisdom is. Yet we find throughout this chapter that Davos is quite savvy in understanding other other people's, other political figures' intentions towards him. And kind of slipping through those, right? I, it's a very smuggler way, you um, know, kind of like the way a smuggler would slip through things. And yet, despite all of this imposter syndrome that Davos has, I think Davos's chapters are a huge study on imposter syndrome which lord knows i'm familiar with but he's very worldly right he's had a different education he's had a lot of actually life experience right as you said he was raised by a tairoshi he wasn't raised within westeros but he's familiar he, he does know westerosi culture but he knows a lot of it from the free cities as well he's seen a lot of different ways that politics can be done and, and other other governmental structures probably through that as well as you know what the loopholes are where, where the feelings of the law are and i think that davos is probably has a lot more life experience than some of these other lords that he has to deal with who many have likely been sequestered and holed up in their in their castles or in their cushy places in westeros as opposed to davos He's selling himself short For sure, pylos agrees with him that men are men and attempts to return to their reading lesson and davos can't help but wonder why the Watch would look to Stannis, weak as ever, for help. And again, Pylos is a good dude. And I think that this discussion of like that, that the free folk, he's like, yeah, they're just like people anywhere. Some suck. Some are awesome. It makes me think that if Davos and Jon do meet, right, they would get along.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talk about roro Horus and it does remind you of some of Jon's mentors, right? Corrin mm-hmm. Tapan definitely comes to mind there. It's Jon's dads. Davos had his own dad before Stannis. Stannis wasn't everything. Sorry, boys.
1: And I mean, Stannis is younger than him.
0: Yeah. Davos asks Maester Pylos if Stannis had seen this letter, and Pylos asks if Davos thinks he should bring it to him himself. Davos says, no, you did your duty in bringing it to Stannis, and he starts to think about what Melisandre had recently told him. One whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power. Soon comes the cold. And the night that never ends. He thinks of the vision Stannis saw in the flames and of Azora High, tempering light bringer. He can't help but wonder if Edric Storm must play Nisa Nisa while Pylos is wondering after his health. He apologizes, saying he's lost in thought.
1: What harm if some wildling king conquers the north? It was not as though Stannis had held the north. His grace could scarcely be expected to defend people who refused to acknowledge him as a king. "'Give me another letter,' he said abruptly. "'This one is too—' "'Difficult,' suggested Pylos.
0: "'Soon comes the cold,' whispered Melisandre, "'and the night that never ends.'"
1: "'Troubling,' said Daphos. "'Too—troubling. "'A different letter, please.'" For now.
0: What a chapter. Uh, it's
1: like it's, a brief chapter, it's, but it's wrong. It's, it's a really strong it's chapter. Dense. It's a really good, well-structured, well-written chapter. Yeah, and there's a lot that comes
0: from this, right? Especially if you read the chapters before and after with Tyrion and Jon. Uh, it, it brought a lot of thoughts to my mind on Davos' future. I think we have a lot to talk about regarding... Skagos, which I won't bring up Now, I'll wait until we get to the Dance with Dragons Don't want to bore you now I'll wait till then But when we come back to the Winds of Winter We're not going to have John For a while, and I wonder Personally if we won't have him until like The middle of the book Mm. I think it could even be that You know, uh, uh, you gotta As a writer, as a fighter You gotta explore those muscles Make sure those weak ass muscles are able to Pull it together, right? And you gotta remove your, your easy button. So if George takes it off for a little, I wouldn't be surprised. And it would be interesting to me if Davos rounded out his plot and went to Eastwatch after he left Skagos. I have ideas about what happens in hmm. Skagos. Again, we'll talk about it in a Dance of Dragons Davos. But to see and maybe protect the Night's Watchmen there in Eastwatch, we're not gonna have John again for a while. Uh, and I don't know, two to three chapters, four chapters in Skagos, we might see Davos moving. Eventually with him ending up at the Wall and joining up with the Northern Plot, so I could see it happening.
1: I don't think Davos would spend four chapters in Skagos. I think that's too much time.
0: Yeah, it's two to three at most,
1: but... Yeah, I would say one to two, just because, I mean, Arya got her, like, blindness resolved very quickly.
0: Yeah, but she's still in Braavos. That's true,
1: but... I mean, George loves that. He's like, I wrote so many chapters of Arya and Bravo. So I'm like, is he going to use all of that?
0: <laughs>
1: but yeah, we'll talk about that eventually. This is all troubling, and we'll probably talk about this again next chapter, but I do want to discuss some of this now, right? Davos' solution to the question of how to create a wind that blows Stannis in the right direction, if not the throne. He's like, we can get him closer to, like, good at least. And, you know, Stannis this whole time, right? He's seeking hard power to rule Westeros on a path that's paved with blood. It, it makes me think of this line from the Forsaken, maybe because of all the Euron, like, language here, but words are wind, but blood is power. And Pylos does say words are wind at some point, and as we'll see in the next chapter, Davos offers a second route that is closer to I will make them love me for Stannis. It, it, it's, uh, I think, a very difficult path for Stannis to take. He's not naturally inclined to it, but I it's a similar idea, it's just almost there. It's the closest he's going to get. And I think seeing how Davos's mind works here, as he mulls over the question of, like, what is duty, without saying it, which is something that Stannis is always repeating of what his duty is, and, you know, he's wondering what the cost is when it comes to Edric, potentially being Nisa Nisa and then whether Stannis owes protection to a kingdom that doesn't recognize him as king and you can see like these gears turning in Davos's head right now and he's like this is too much this is this is a lot of feelings right now but then later on he's gonna be like I think I can hit one bird with two stones kind of reversing it maybe that works maybe it doesn't he takes a bet on Stannis's goodness but you know he's not super sure of it so he tries out his to put as many miles between Stannis and Edric as he can by not only helping Edric escape, but also being like, but Stannis, what if you went north? Isn't this a good idea? And trying to remove that temptation from Stannis. But in hindsight, I think there's a situational irony here that speaks to George's question during the Shadow Baby chapters of like, how far down the line does culpability go? Because George is I think interested in exploring these cycles of things, right? How far do- down the line is responsibility? Because what Davos does, we know what happens to Stannis, right? It's portended by the king with a crown of fire that's burning him up. Davos thinks that he is saving Stannis's soul by removing the temptation of burning Edric, by removing Edric from Stannis' life. But in sending Stannis north, What Davos is actually doing is hastening the wheels of prophecy. He's bringing Stannis closer to those forces of darkness, to the others, right? As well as, of course, the darkness in his own heart, as he enters these really desperate conditions of the northern storms, his own version of Daeron's attempt at conquering Dorne. And it's there in the north, in the winter, with the others at their door, that Stannis does end up seeking his own Nissa Nissa in Shireen. Would he have turned to that if he hadn't gone north?
0: I mean, I'm, I'm, I hate to be shitposting at your beautiful essay, but it does remind me of Danny, right? Mm-hmm. To go north, he must go south, blah, 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 blah. Stannis isn't going to find what he's looking for. He wasn't going to find it in the south, and he wasn't going to find it in the north. And he's going to burn everything down in his path as he does. Yeah, failed to find it.
1: He's de- he's wedded to yeah. his duty, right? The way Quentin was like, I gotta do this for my family. I gotta do this for my dad, and they could have chosen to to leave, yeah. write themselves out.
0: He could have left. He was told to leave. He was begged to leave. But what did Quentin do? He didn't. He let it consume him because that search for power was more important than actually grasping it and understanding what to do with it and how to wield it. Yeah like you said words are wind but blood is power
1: it's not the only kind of power but that's that's the route that stannis is taking
0: yeah it's the route many absolutely. in the story
1: take it is it is well happy new year happy new year real heavy stuff some child murder Some burps, avoided child murder know. oh wait yeah, except for avoided. rob rob just died oh god rip
0: that's uh, Aegon Jingle Bell that's right there's your other uh, patch face that's right. Jingle Bell this re- episode mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: well I'm glad that you all made it along to listen to us in the new year that you did not go to any fatefully weird weddings Right, avoid those invites thanks for sticking it out with us
1: you know if you want to stick it out with us this year and for all the years to come For all the nights to come. You can find us on social media. Be sure to give us a follow. Or if you have any things that you want to tell us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or perhaps you, like Daniel, would like to shoot us an email. You can find us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you aren't
0: already subscribed to us, make sure that you have hit subscribe on your local podcast provider. Be that Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon you name it Pandora War There iHeartRadio, pick one, you'll find us.
1: And of course we do have a Patreon and patrons five dollars and up. Get access to special episodes. This month is going to be in A Song of Ice and Fire episode. And you know, if if everything blows our way, blows us in the right direction, I think we have an exciting, exciting, interesting idea for this month's episode. But you can also subscribe on our Patreon for $10 and up, Thunder Tier and above, and join our Discord.
0: Yes, we are having a blast on Discord. We're having a monthly brunch slash happy hour. Mm. We put a theme on it, but it's really up for grabs. Come as you are. Hang out. Bullshit with everyone. We also talk about food and A Song of Ice and Fire and His Dark Materials and basically everything under the sun during the day, during the evening. So come by. Again, this is patreon.com slash canon, and we would love to have you. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe.
1: And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana.
0: We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Wow, we're almost done with Storm.